Well, we already heard from Luke this morning, Thompson, that is, our, our intern. Now we'll hear from Dr. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And uh, Luke Thompson set up the sermon well this morning, talking about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and um, teaching our children diligently to obey His commands. This morning, what we want to look at is why do people either want to obey God's commands to follow Him as King or why they don't want to? These are important questions. Faithful servants trust in their master's character and plans. I'll kind of give you the punchline now. Those who trust in God as their king love to serve because they trust in his character, that he's good, that he's he's a good king, he's a good master, and they trust in his plans, that this serving isn't going to be for naught. This serving is going to lead to eternal good, that it's worth my time, that it's, it's the worthiest thing I can spend my time on. But those who, deep down in their heart of hearts, don't trust in the character and in the plans of Him who they serve, will not serve with joy. If they serve at all, it will be begrudgingly, with as little as it takes, and not expecting much in return, and not wanting to do it to honor or glorify their master. And this is exactly what we're going to see when Jesus enters the holy city, and they're shouting, Hosanna, this is our king, we're ready to follow you as king, and then one week later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The true nature of their hearts came out. And before we shake our heads at them, we need to look at ourselves and say, what is it about human nature that says, oh yeah, we want a king, and then all too quickly, we don't want a king. I'll submit to you this morning that people don't naturally like to be led. We don't like to submit and trust in others. I, I don't, which makes it awkward when you're put in a position of authority. <laughs> and then you get frustrated because people don't like to be led, but you have to remember, wait a minute, I'm people. I don't like to be led either. And so we're in this together, folks. Everybody has to submit to somebody or some bodies And the entire message of the Bible could be kind of summed up in this. There's this king, and he is sovereign, and nobody really wants to submit to him. And what is he going to do about it? I ask you this morning, you're in church, you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you call him your king, but why do you want Jesus to be your king? Have you ever stopped and asked? What are the hidden motives of the heart? Lurking behind the correct Sunday school answer. We're all a bag of mixed motives, right? 
the old man competing against the new man. But the good news is that in, in Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers us to say yes to the correct motives. And we can cultivate the correct motives. And that's what I want to help us all with this morning. I was not able to give this point first service, and I want to make sure I get it out now. It was one of those busy weeks. I had a daughter graduate, a lot of emotions, a lot of planning. Doesn't mean I didn't prepare for the sermon, but you know, whatever it was, that, that thing that finally clicks when you're sermon prepping, yes, I've got it now. I'm, it didn't really come until the middle of the sermon this morning. <laughs> And it, it, it hit me that this is what I'm really trying to say this morning. Is that you and I, we are not ready for a king until we acknowledge that we don't really want one. You are not ready to be led until you come to grips with the fact that you don't want to be led. You are not ready for a career until you come to grips with the fact that you don't want a boss. You are not ready for marriage until you come to grips with the fact that nobody likes to submit. And you don't want really to love sacrificially as Christ loved the church. You are not ready to have children Until you understand that they are not going to want to submit to you. You say, well then why would we sign up for any of these things? Because on the other side of this acknowledgement, there is great joy. There is great joy. When you learn to mutually submit to one another in marriage, marriage is a great blessing. But as long as it's a power play, it can be miserable. Raising children, oh, right? Can I get an amen? And some of you are still waiting for the joy. But there is great joy in raising children. When they finally learn to trust their parents. And sometimes it takes them becoming parents of their own to go, Oh, wow, this, is this what I put mom and dad through? Yes. You did. It's a lot harder than I thought. And because this is the sentiment of the heart that makes us not want to lead, to be led. See the Freudian slip there? <laughs> we think we could lead better. We think we could lead better. So a lot of times when we think we're consciously putting ourselves under someone's leadership, we're really saying, as long as they lead like this, this, and this, I will follow. Well, that's not following. That's getting your way and giving someone else all the hard work. And that is fallen human nature. So as we look at the crowd who will say, Hosanna, In the highest, this is our king, this is our Messiah, and then a week later say, we don't want him. It was because they thought they could upgrade. He wasn't giving them the things that they wanted. 
Why do you want Jesus to be your king? Some people came to Christ because they've always felt rejected and not good enough and nobody likes me, nobody loves me, and they heard this message that Jesus loves you just the way you are and that is true and that is wonderful, but just the way you are was a wretched sinner. Oh, that's not what I was really thinking of myself. I was really thinking that I'm a pretty good, pretty neat person and I'm upset that people don't recognize that in me. Well, I have news for you. Generally, people that are kind and gracious and generous and loving attract friends. So I know you may be hurting and you feel rejected. And the last thing you want to hear is maybe it's because there's something off-putting about you. Well, I came to church to to hear some encouragement and you're going to kick me while I'm down? Well, maybe what you need to hear this morning is... Hello, look at the cross. That tells us there was something horribly wrong with us if Jesus had to come and die for us. Maybe you came to Jesus because you wanted God to vindicate you and get even with all your supposed enemies. Well, revenge is a horrible reason to come to Jesus. You, you were the enemy of God and he showed you mercy and grace on the cross. And he wants us to show our enemies grace and mercy. Maybe you came to Jesus because you were worn out, exhausted, tired of this broken world. And you thought this Jesus could fix all your problems. Oh, he can. He just knows your problems better than you do. He's fixing the important problems. You have to acknowledge that, as Francis Schaeffer said, the human heart, the fallen human heart, is really just looking for personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. Just leave me alone so I can make my own kingdom prosper. And so some people thought they came to Jesus to have him as their king, but they really just want him to structure their life in such a way that they can just be left alone and play with my toys and go on my vacations and not have to help all these people with all their needs and all their demands. That's not what coming to Jesus is about. So we have to search our hearts this morning and say, why, why did I come to Jesus in the first place? And why am I calling him my king now? What are the mixed motives of my heart? Or do I trust in his character and his plan so much that I already have joy even if my expectations haven't been met yet? Whatever Jesus does in my life, it's going to be great. How do you know? Because he's Jesus. And everything he does is great. And everything he does is good. And he's already died for me. And what does Paul say in Romans? If he did not 
withhold the life of his own son, how much more will he give us all things? Well, what are the all things? Tell me what the all things are, and then maybe I'll sign up for Jesus as king. You don't need to know what the all things are. Because he's already given you the greatest thing. He's given himself to you. So whatever the all things are is, is just bonus. It's just gravy. It's, you can trust in him. Now, in all of our human relationships, we go, well, how do I know this person's going to be a good boss? How do I know I should vote for this politician? How do I know he's not going to do the old bait and switch on me? Lots of young people are putting off marriage, but they're dating and dating and dating and living together, living together, living together, and they, they won't commit. Why? Well, how do I know? They're not going to pull the old switcheroo on me. Oh, they will. And you will too. <laughs> That's why you get married. Because you say, I, I know we're going to let each other down and that's no reason to bail on the relationship. I know my boss is going to let me down at some point. I'm going to let him or her down too. I know my pastor's going to let me down in some way. Guess what? You're going to let me down too. There's no reason to bail. My children are going to let me down, and people bail on their children. I don't want to raise them anymore. Or children, I don't want these as my parents anymore. I want out. Let me tell you, in case I run out of time and don't get to the punchline, here's why you want Jesus to be your king. Because in all these other relationships, the difference was you had two sinners trying to figure out this relationship of mutual submission. In our relationship with God, we can completely trust Him that He will never let us down. He will never fall short of our expectations. He will never grow weary. He will never sin. He has no ulterior motives. He has nothing to prove. He has no fear of man issues. He has no insecurities. You can completely trust in this good and perfect God as your king. Amen? Amen? And because of that, because the most important thing is settled, we can extend grace to one another in our human relationships of mutual submission. So let me read this parable to you this morning and and tell you what's going on behind the scenes. Remember that when Jesus teaches in parables, it's not to make truth more clear. He explicitly taught this That the reason I teach in parables is because when I taught clearly, people with hardened hearts refuse to be teachable. So now I will switch over to parables and hide the meaning as a form of judgment. Did he not in clear, plain 
I was going to say English, but... Say that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem and he will be mocked and scourged and rejected and crucified, but he'll rise again on the third day. And nobody wanted to hear that because it didn't fit the narrative. Their narrative was he's going to come, he's going to topple Rome, he's going to lift Israel back up to its place of prominence. And as individuals, they were each saying, and I'm going to have a very special role in this kingdom because I'm a special person who deserves a special role. And you project onto Jesus everything you think about yourself and you assume he's just going to affirm that right back at you. And he's saying, oh, no, you're going to reject me, spit on me, scourge me, yell, crucify him. Oh, not me, right, Peter? I would never deny you. Oh, you're going to do it tonight. Again, you're not ready for a king until you acknowledge, I really don't want a king. Like, well, that's kind of a paradox. So in order to be ready for a king, I have to admit I don't want a king. Yes, And then repent of that and let God tell you why it is that you really should want a king. And then what kind of king should you be hoping for? And then he'll demonstrate to you that he is that king. He is that king. He's the king you've been waiting for, not the king you've been conjuring up in your mind. That's you. That's you. You want to be your own king. I want to be my own king. And then we're miserable as our own kings. Luke 19. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. I'm in verse 11. Because he was near Jerusalem... And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They thought this was the time. He's going to march into Jerusalem and establish the kingdom. So he tells this parable because they are mistaken. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We'll stop there. So Luke provides the reason for the parable, which gives us a clue to its meaning. Why is Jesus teaching this parable? Don't just read and decide for yourself what it means. Look at the context. Jesus was teaching this parable because they were mistaken about the kingdom. As I was studying this week, I was reminded of all the places in the Bible where people thought they wanted a king and and then didn't. Israel wanted Saul as their king. Samuel, the prophet, was mortified. God is our king. You can't do better than God. They said, well, we want to be like the other nations. We want an impressive human king. And they picked Saul because he was tall, dark, and handsome. 
but he was a coward. He was hiding in the luggage. And they made him king, and God said, are you sure you want a king? Because when he takes your young men and forces them to fight, and takes your young women and forces them to serve, and takes all of your money, right? Are you sure that's what you want? And they're not listening. They've got their own ideas in their head about what life is going to be like with this king. It's going to fix everything. And so God tells Samuel, in effect, I've got this. We're going to give them this human king and teach them a lesson. The Israelites didn't want Pharaoh as their king until a few days later and they were tired of manna and they said, well, we should go back to Pharaoh being our king. At least we had some variety in our diet. Wow, how quickly they rejected God as their king and deliverer. Really, you could trace this all the way back to Adam and Eve. They didn't want God as their king. And there was someone before Adam and Eve that rejected God as king, right? Lucifer, an angel of light, beautiful, beautiful angel, rejected God as king. And God said, there's only room for one king up here, and you're not it. And cast him down along with a third of the angels, and it was... Lucifer, now Satan, who tempted Adam and Eve. Really to say, do you really want this God as your king? Can you really trust him? I think he's holding back. I think life would be better if you guys ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, we'll die. He said, but you won't die. You'll be like God and then you can be your own king. You'll know good and evil. And you'll do a better job of it. Isn't that tempting? And that's how we're all tempted. I would, I would be a better king. I would be a better king. We do it all the time. It's, it's human nature. It's human nature to go to an event that's put on and the whole time say, you know, I probably would have put this over here and I would have done these, you know, you're at somebody's wedding. It's this beautiful, gorgeous thing they've been planning their whole life and put hours and hours and hours of work and preparation into it. And everybody's out there. And by everybody, I'm thinking probably more of the ladies. Um, and the men have their own thing. They do. You know, but they're like, oh, really? Those colors? Huh. Like, just celebrate. It's a, it's a wonderful day. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? A couple weeks ago, we went to Riverside to help Krista get accustomed to Cal Baptist, and we went to check out some churches and worship with them. But it was hard to turn off the, yeah, no, not so much I like that. No, you know, I'm like supposed to be there worshiping Jesus, and I'm criticizing in my mind, is this church worthy of my daughter's attendance? You know. Or the whole, I think our church does this better than that. All right. And just to eat some humble pie, we went to harvest that night to, you know, 
uh, Greg Laurie's church. And you're like, oh, we've got a ways to go. <laughs> so we all want to be king because we all think we could do a better job. And then you're put in charge and you get a taste of your own medicine. Everybody's thinking, I could do this better than you. Your kids. Sometimes it takes a lot of years before their parents themselves to go, oh, it's hard to lead another heart. Yes, it is. It's easy to lead inanimate objects. They don't talk back and do what you tell them to do. Not, not to pick on you, hun, but as a teacher, she's like, I love setting up the grade book. I love the lesson plans. I love the filing. I love, but the kids, they don't always like do what you want them to do, right? And yeah, that's the rub of teaching. That's, that's the, the hard part that they don't really teach you in teaching school. They teach you how to lesson plan and how to set up your classroom and da 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 and they don't tell you about all the rebellious kids because nobody would teach. And same for seminaries. They teach you how to interpret God's word and put together sermons and preach and da-da-da-da-da. And, and, and like right before graduation, like, oh, by the way, the people you lead, <laughs> they're... The average stay of a pastor in a church now in the Southern Baptist Convention is down to under two years. Like, wow, the honeymoon wears off fast. Hey, I made 10 years in March. I think that says a lot about you guys and less about me. So, Jesus, interestingly, in this parable, is tapping into Jericho's, right? He's, he's leaving Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's tapping into Jericho's recent history. And let me, let me fill you in on that history. Herod the Great was made uh, one of the four tetrarchs over um, the Roman Empire. So one of the four areas was Judea, Sumeria, Idumea. And Herod the Great ruled over those areas. When he died, they split up his quarter of the empire to his three sons. And they're all psychos, right? The whole Herodian dynasty is filled with psychos. Which, interestingly, psychos sometimes are able to lead really well. Probably because they're willing to do things you and I aren't. One of the sons was Archelaus, and he was put in charge of Judea. And the Judeans did not want Archelaus to be their king. Sounds a lot like the parable, right? And there, there was an uprising and Archelaus had 3,000 Jews slaughtered to keep the peace. And when it came time for the ceremony to actually officially give him his kingdom... Right? We talked about that. That's one of the meanings of kingdom in the Bible is just the right to rule. So when he went to Rome and was given his kingdom, it's not like he was given a suitcase with like a kingdom in there. 
he, he, was, he was officially given the right to rule. And when he went to this far-off country, like the parable, a delegation of Jews followed him to complain to Caesar and say, we don't want this guy as our king. We will not submit to him. We're telling you now. And Caesar said, too bad, he's going to be your king, but I'll do this. He's not allowed to use the title king until he kind of wins you over and you see that he's somebody you could submit to. Well, it, it never happened. Never happened. He was a horrible leader. Judea was filled with chaos and turmoil. And like the first-year teacher in the classroom who has no classroom management skills before they're given tenure, their second year, there's, the principal says, yeah, no. Yeah, no. I learned that pretty fast as a teacher. Really had less to do with your teaching skills, more to do with your classroom management skills. And then the principal would be happy because these kids aren't in my office. That's how you get tenure. And Archelaus could not keep the peace. Now, I think he, could, like he couldn't keep the peace because another thing teachers learn is that your class will submit to you if they trust you, that you have their best interests in mind, that you're for them, that you love them. That's the kind of leader we want, not one that rules with an iron fist. It's not the best way to keep the peace. And so, Archelaus was dethroned, and instead of another king, they put governors in charge. And by the time you get to the fifth governor, that's Pontius Pilate, and that catches you up to speed. So, Jesus is telling this parable, and these people of Jericho know exactly what he's talking about when he says... This nobleman went off to a distant country to receive a kingdom, but his own citizens hated him and didn't want him to be king. What he's also doing is he's prophesying that this is you. This is you. You're going to hate your king and you're not going to want him. You're going to hate me, Jesus is saying, and you're not going to want me to reign over you. So the parable continues. He calls ten of his slaves. So the slaves are the people who have said, okay, we will submit to you as our king. So these aren't the people who openly rejected him. These are ten slaves who said, okay, we'll submit to you as our, our king. And he gives them each a mina, which is one-sixth of a talent, And if this parable sounds like another one that rings a bell, you're right. The parable of the talents is very much like this parable. In fact, Jesus is going to teach that parable in a couple days in Jerusalem. And it's almost the same parable, except in this one, everybody gets one mina. So everybody gets the same stewardship. In the parable of the talents, some people get ten, some get five. You put the two parables together and you understand that Jesus is saying, look, I distribute the gifts 
You're the stewards. You're the slaves. And there's going to be an accounting. In, in some sense, compared to God, we all have the same amount of gifting. Compared to God, it's hardly anything. A mina, hardly anything. You know, we get this, this, this little role in the kingdom. In the other parable, there's an acknowledgement that, yes, from a human perspective, some people seem to have a little bit more giftedness than others. That's okay. You trust God for that. Just know that the people with more gifting are going to be held to a higher account. To whom is given, much will be expected. So before you get jealous of the person that has, seems to have more talents from God, just know that their life may be a lot more stressful than yours. The grass may not be greener over there. You say, well, I want, I want the recognition and the accolades and all of the authority. Have you seen like a U.S. president before he enters office and after? It's like they, they go from full of energy and vibrant and great ideas and they come out the other side like a shriveled gray raisin. And you're like, wow, maybe being president's not all it's cut out to be. Maybe that person that you're jealous of, maybe uh, swapping places with them isn't as glamorous as you thought it would be. You be faithful with the stewardship God has given you. You be faithful with the stewardship God has given you. Every professing believer is given a stewardship by the master. It's a test. It's a test. It's not a test to see how good you are. That's that's where we fail, as we're like, oh, I'm going to impress God. No, you're not. The test is, do you trust the master and do you want to see his name made great? That's the test. Do you, do you trust him? Or do you take the stewardship and you go, oh. Man, I was at church this morning and they were asking for more Sunday school teachers. They were asking for someone else to serve here, here, and here. They're always asking for people to serve. Oh, man, it's my turn to serve in the nursery. I, I, I had high hopes for this Sunday, and that just... Well, if our heart is there where we serve begrudgingly, something's off. Something's wrong. So... You can learn from the test before you get to the final exam. How are you doing on the test? That's what I'm asking this morning. How are you doing on the test? Do you like to serve? Do you love to serve? Do you find joy in serving? And not just at church. Do you get up in the morning and you love to serve your spouse, serve your family, serve your kids, serve your parents, serve your fellow employees at work, serve your boss? Serve your customers. Secular scientists have studied this well and have found that the happiest people in the world are those 
who serve with joy. Whether you're religious or not, those are the happy people. And you've, you've, you've seen this when you're doing something that you love and you're working hard at it. You don't even notice that it's hard work. Right? It's just, oh, wow, it's, it's 5 o'clock? I want to keep working. I'll see this always at VBS. You have people who are like, is it Friday yet? Why did I sign up for this? And then people are like, I can't believe it's Friday. Can we do another week? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Next year, we'll do another week. Actually, they just love it. Love to serve. Because they're trusting that what I'm doing is important for the king. What I'm doing is important for the king. It's bringing glory to the king. Oh, these little kids are getting to know Jesus. That's magnificent. That's never wasted time there. Man, I've spent a lot of time on things that really have no payoff. How about you? I don't know why I spend all that time on that. What's, you know, whatever the motive is. The stewardship is a gift from the master. It's both a token of the master's love and a test. Like, have you ever really thought about the fact that God could do everything that he asks us to do like way better than we could? Right? But he condescends out of his love for us and says, here's your mina. You know, like the Trinity is like, look at him go. Wow. That's, that's so special, you know. Like we do with our kids. You know, oh, look at him go. Right? I hear people say, you know, my kids are lazy. They don't, any, they don't do any chores. It's like, well, have you trained them? No, because they do it wrong. Like, get out of the way. You're just going to break everything. And you're like, oh, you're, you know, you have kids so you can enjoy them, not someday maybe they'll be enjoyable. Right? And the someday never comes. And the, and the kids know that. But that's not a relationship with God. And if you're struggling in your relationship with God, maybe it's because you view him as that kind of king. Never happy with you, never satisfied. Nothing's ever good enough. Look, because Christ died for us, it's good enough. Christ's sacrifice is good enough. It's, it's, it is finished. God is pleased and loves you in Christ. He's not saying, well, maybe if uh, you'll pick up one more shift at the church in the nursery, then I'll die for you. He died for you before you had any interest at all in serving him. And so now you're free to serve with joy. Oh man, what do I get to do for God today? Not that he needs me to do it, but I get to do it. I've got my little mina. What am I going to do with it? Right? That, that humbles us. It puts it in perspective. I was having kids in the youth group. Man, I want to do great things for God. I want to go, I want to go save the Muslim nations. 
like, well, have you, have you cleaned your room today? Let's start with the mina and see where it goes. Have you shared Christ with your friend at school? Well, you know, they, well, they grow up attached to me. I'm sure they know about Jesus, you know. So you want to go across the world and win souls for Christ overseas, but what makes you think you'll be faithful with that kind of stewardship if you can't be faithful here? It's a good point. So let, let's work on it. It's not, it's not to like rebuke them in such a way that they're like, you're right, I'm worthless, I'm useless. No, just be faithful in little things. In fact, it's a lot less pressure to be faithful in the little things. And then before you know it, God's adding and adding and adding, and you wake up one day and you're like, how did I get here? Whose bright idea was it to put me in charge of some stuff? Because <laughs> you were faithful in a little. Oh, that's the way it works. Have the long view in mind. It's a marathon, not a sprint. The faithful steward love and trust their master. They want to see him honored. They want to see him honored. You can hear the excitement in their voices here. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. I'm excited for you. I've, I've contributed to enlarging your kingdom and your influence. You're a good master. I want to see you prosper. Because I love you and I've figured out that as you prosper, I prosper with you. And... He said to him, well done, good slave. Doulos, slave. Slave's a better translation than servant. Servants can kind of decide if they want to serve or not. Slaves have to serve. We have to serve, but we get to serve. We have to serve because God is master, but we get to serve. We're excited to serve because he's a good master. Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. Which I must confess when I read intimidated me. Well, that's a lot of work, <laughs> ten cities. But in the heavenly kingdom where there's no sin, ruling over ten cities is going to be a joy. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but this is the teaching that there is rewards for faithfulness now not getting you into heaven because we get into heaven through the sacrifice christ made on the cross only through our faith in christ amen amen but then it's like well then what well there's there's rewards the bible's clear about it paul's clear about it there's a judgment seat then there's another seat called the bema seat where your works are judged And the ones that were worthless, useless works will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. And the the ones that were of eternal value are are like jewels. So there's there's incentive to be faithful. Don't just be like, well, good, I'm saved. I got that going for me. Back to my life. No. 
But it shouldn't be your primary motive to work hard for the future rewards. The primary motive is, what a good God. I like to please Him. I like, I, I, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Oh yeah, and by the way, here's your reward. But the, the real reward is that your master has joy in you and you have joy in him. That's, that's a relationship that's firing on all cylinders now. You just enjoy each other's presence. Like the Trinity has for all time. The Son submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. But they're co-equal. How does that work? It does in his economy. Submitting is, is a joy. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy set before him. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For the joy set before him. Now the unfaithful servant, he says, Master, here's your mina, I put it away in a handkerchief. Because I was afraid of you. Because you're an exacting man, meaning you're hard to please. Nothing's ever good enough for you. has to be just exactly right. So what's the point? Why try? So I just wrapped it up in a handkerchief, which the commentators say, if something's precious to you in ancient Israel, you bury it. In the ground, that was the safest place to keep your money. Not a handkerchief in your pocket. You pull your handkerchief out, you lose the, you're going to lose the money or you're going to get robbed. You didn't keep precious things in a handkerchief in your pocket. It demonstrates that this man had judged the master as not worthy to serve and not trustworthy. That his hard work would be recognized. And so he decided wrong things about his master and his mind. And and that's what we do with those in authority over us. We start to say, they don't really care about me. They're They're not, they don't really care about me. They don't want me to succeed. They're not for me. They're in it for themselves. And certainly you might have a master like that. But in general, I think that's more rare than the opposite case. That people in authority are just trying to do their best. It's hard to be in authority in a world filled with people who don't want to be under authority. And he says, you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. This is a lie. And as we understand that the parable ultimately is about Jesus himself, did not Jesus lay down his life for us and he reaped what he did not sow? He reaped God's wrath even though he did not sow sin. We sowed sin and we reap the righteousness of Christ. We end up reaping what we didn't sow in Christ. 
That's what triggers the proper motive in your heart to serve God. The, the cross is what motivates us to say, what a good and loving God. I want to serve this God. Look what he's done for me. He's demonstrated his love beyond the shadow of a doubt. He is for me. He will not reject me. He will appreciate my service to him if I do it with a pure heart. The false accusation ends up being used to judge the unfaithful servant. The master says, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? He's not saying that that's who he really is. He's saying, if that's what you thought about me, then you should have at least invested the money in the bank, so at least I would have got it back with some interest. But by your own words, you will be judged. Fine, is that your excuse? Fine, then I'll hold you to that standard. You should have at least put the money in the bank. Be very careful what you say about God's people, about God and his people. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Be very careful what you say about God in your heart. And be very careful what you say about those in authority over you. Be very careful. Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And he didn't say to not judge at all. He says, get the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. But if you're walking around and you're that person that everywhere you go, you're critical, then that is the standard by which you will be judged. Because you've demonstrated to the world from your own mouth that that is the standard that you want to hold other people to. Okay, well, when it's your turn to be in charge... Let's see how your kids respond to you. Or let's see how those that work for you respond to you. Be careful how you judge those in authority. There will be rewards for faithful servants. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him, the worthless slave, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, well, master, he already has ten minas. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And so at the end of the day, we come full circle to where we started last week, which is that there really are only two categories of people. Faithful servants of God and unfaithful servants who do not know God. Because he says, but these enemies of mine, and he's talking about the people at the beginning of the parable who rejected his reign from the get-go, he says, bring those people to me And slay them in my presence. But the indication here from the parable is that the people who said, well, yeah, he can be my king, but in their heart of hearts didn't want him to be their king, the unfaithful slave, they're not going to be part of the kingdom as well. It's not that there's three categories of people, those who reject Jesus, those who 
tolerate Jesus but don't really want to serve him and then those who want to serve him. The parable is telling us that there are false believers. False believers. They were given a mina and when it came time to demonstrate what they did with their mina, what was really being demonstrated was how they felt about their master in their heart. You're not really a master or a servant of the master. You're no different than the people who rejected me from the get-go. In fact, it's almost worse in a sense to pretend you love Jesus. And it's a dangerous place to be because you end up deluding yourself. We saw last week Many will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do good works in your name? And Jesus said, away from you, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. But for those who trust in God's character and in his plans, we get to hear this. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things Enter into the joy of your master. And, and I was studying this grammatical construction, the joy of your master. Does that mean that the joy that belongs to God? Or does it mean the joy you get to experience only that comes from knowing the master? And the, the way the construction is in the Greek, it, it, it can mean both. That there's joy being in the presence of your master, knowing that he is pleased with you, and there is joy that comes from God that we get to experience in his presence. I think both are in view here. John fifteen fifteen. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? You're no longer slaves. You're my friend. And your closest friend, what do you do with them? You share what? You share your innermost thoughts and dreams and hopes. And this is the mind of Christ. God's innermost thoughts. We don't have to serve Him blindly like, well, I don't know where this is going. I don't know if any good's going to come of this. We, we get to know the plan because we're friends when we put our faith in Christ. And when you serve alongside your friends, isn't that the best kind of work? It's not work at all. That's when your marriage is firing on all cylinders. My best friend and me living life. When, when your kids, when that trust is there, fire on all cylinders, parenting's not work once you get to that place. And God says we can be at that place with him if we will trust in his character and in his plans. I'm just working for my friend. It's going to be good. It's going to turn out great. It's going to be meaningful. Well, what are all the details? That'll take care of itself. If you know the outcome, then the details aren't as important. You don't have to stress over those things because that's what ends up destroying 
the relationship. So ask these questions this week. Are you a joyful, faithful servant? Before you say yes, ask some people. Right? so sure yes yes you work hard yes you serve a lot yes you sign up for a lot of things yes you're very busy around the house joyful and it's like that's hard to hear because then you feel unappreciated but you know you need to know because in general like joyful happy people who love doing what they're doing attract more people around them and you might be one of those people that are like, I work so hard and, and I have no friends. Trust Jesus. Ask him why. No. Maybe you're just hard to be around. Yes, you work hard, but I'd rather you work less and smile more. Why do you serve? Do you believe in your heart that God is good and loving and calls you friend because of Christ? Or are you still trying to earn his love through your quote-unquote service performed out of guilt or fear or pride or insecurities? Which means you don't take correction well because it just shatters you. Do you want Jesus to be your king because you trust his plans and in his character? Or do you really want him to just accommodate your plans? Trust me, his plans for you are far better than your own plans for yourself. And I'm preaching to the choir myself right now. Which means I need you to pray for me and I'll pray for you. And I know there's some people here this morning that need their joy restored. Serving has been miserable for you. God's not pleased with that. God's not pleased when I show up to work because it's my job to be a pastor. And there's a way to get back to that place where you had joy in your serving. And it means get your focus off of all these other people and all their problems and all the ways they've let you down because really your focus is on you at that point. And put your eyes on the cross and go, oh yeah, God loves me, calls me friend. I get to to work with him. I get to do kingdom work that has eternal value. Find your joy. If you lost it, that's where you found it in the first place. Father, restore our joy this morning, the joy of our salvation, the joy of serving you, the joy of getting to be part of your eternal plans. Humble us back to the day when we just had the one little mina. Wherever we are in our walk with you, Lord, bring us back to that place, to our first love, where we couldn't wait to serve you because of what you did for us on the cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.